Hello and welcome to another episode of Sexual Confidence on Tap with Shannon Etheridge and friends. And one of the things that I do love about this podcast is that I get to reconnect with so many of my old friends. Shanti Feldhahn and I met each other years ago, I believe on a John Maxwell tour. I cannot remember. I might have been at an event for Multnomah, the old Multnomah. Right. Back in the day. Like, <laughs> I can't remember. It's been 20 years, probably. Yeah. Yeah. So we've been running in similar circles, <laughs> right? Running into each other at American Association of Christian Counselors World Conferences. And I'm always excited about her projects. But this one in particular that she has done with Dr. Michael Seitzma that I, I interviewed Dr. Michael last time. So if you didn't catch that episode, you might want to back up and, and listen to that one. I'm particularly intrigued by this one, obviously, because it is all about sex and marriage. But we're going to start this podcast by putting a disclaimer out there. Shanti is not a sex therapist, doesn't claim to be, but this is what I love about her fierce intellect. She is a researcher and she is one of the best researchers out there and partnering with someone who is a sex therapist, i.e. Dr. Michael Seitzma. What a dynamic duo. So Shanti, welcome to the show and thank you for diving into this topic that there's just a lot of conjecture out there about how to make sex and marriage work, but I love that you bring data to the table that can really be put under the microscope and examined closely. So what motivated you to do this project in this season? Well, motivated me to do it, maybe overstating it, because here's actually what happened. Jeff and I, my husband, Jeff and I do all the research together, right? And we had finished the last study, which was actually for our book called Thriving in Love and Money. Mm -hmm. So it was on money in marriage. And, you know, everybody knows that the two big issues, the two big argument starters in marriage are sex and money. Right. So we were like, you know, Lord, are we supposed to do another research project? Like, I don't know, you know, what's the next step? And we both kind of went, we looked at, we finished money. And then we looked at this one, we're like, oh, dang. I think we're supposed to do this. You know, the next step. Because the next step, and I'm like, I want to leave this for people like Shannon. <laughs> <laughs> Talk about this with great comfort. And I was just like the average, you know, semi-awkward, you know, wife, you know, where we just didn't talk about this topic very much. And, and so that's the actual literal, I'm telling you the honest to goodness truth about how this project started. I, I believe you <laughs> that it was really a felt need that you recognized. You could yeah. not deny that this was an area that couples yeah. most often struggle in. And we had, and just, just so you know, one of the things in all of the other studies, this was our 12th nationally representative study, right? And in all the others, anything that had to do with marriage and romantic relationships, obviously this topic came up a lot. Like we kept, we kept seeing the pain points. And so it was just really clear that we needed to tackle it. Now, that's also the reason that we actually reached out to Dr. Seitzma, right? To, to Dr. Mike, because on this topic, like we knew we could do damage if we were a little bit inaccurate about certain things and 
he had been one of our advisors for years in some of our other projects. And so, yeah, it was, it was amazing that he agreed as, you know, one of the most renowned sex therapists in the country. Absolutely. Going to do it. Yeah. Absolutely. And he and I had talked about your, the uniqueness of your sample, that it's not just you polled your following or put something out there on Facebook. It's that this is a scientific representation of the country and yeah. it's one of the largest of its kind, 5,300 married couples that you interviewed. So Shanti, I think that one of the things that I want to hear from you is when you were doing this research, what did you learn about the most common roadblocks? Because if people are clicking along, no problem, they're probably not necessarily listening to this podcast, but sometimes people listening, they're struggling with right. how to even understand the roadblocks, let alone get over them. So what did you yeah. learn? That's a great way of putting it. So uh, big picture, one of the most important things that I hadn't quite realized until we started this. Now, <laughs> nothing surprised Mike. <laughs> like He heard everything. Because he knows it all. Because <laughs> <laughs> he's been doing this for 35 years or whatever. I don't doubt right? it. <laughs> Uh, but everything surprised me. But one of one of the big um, areas that we saw actually statistically as well mm -hmm. is that the mythology around this topic is actually often what's getting in the way. Like truly, we believe as a culture and in our individual marriages, we believe a lot of stuff that's just not true. And like for I'll give you an example because um, that always helps me, if you don't mind. Sure. Um, but like one example of this is we, we what we found is that 79% of couples um, have that simple pain of literally just one person wanting to connect more often than the right. other, right? Like that, and, and just for people to know, oh, that's 79% of couples, that's not 5%. Like everybody deals with Four out of five couples. Right. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. So every since since 79%, almost eight, you know, and 10 couples deal with this. One of the things that I hadn't really put together before we started seeing the, the data come in is that we have a, a very wrong idea of why that disconnect is there. Because we naturally, I think it's, Hollywood, like, I don't know where it comes from, but we naturally assume if one person is wanting more of that connection than the other, that means by definition that the person who wants less, they just have a lower sex drive, mm. right? Like they just have a lower libido. Like that's the reason. Right. And that puts a lot of pressure on the person with a lower sex drive, who statistically is usually more likely to be the wife right? Not right. always. We, we actually found that 24% of women have the higher drive, the higher desire, right? Um, which is not a small number. Um, and that but, does not surprise me at all. I know it doesn't. Yeah, yeah about one out of four couples, that. I'm having to change the language because the stereotype just doesn't apply. Yeah. But even then, okay, so even then, let's say it's the wife with the higher desire and the husband who has the lower desire. It's still the same dynamic where we assume that that is the reason why we're not connecting as often. And mm -hmm. it hurt, and so there's pressure on that lower desire person because it's like, what's wrong with you, right? And you start thinking, what's wrong with me? 
Exactly. exactly. I was going to say, it'd be hard exactly. not to take that personally as the higher desire partner of why won't they connect with me more? What's often? wrong with me? Or if you are the lower desire person, you also think what's wrong with me. Right. Like, am I frigid? Like what, you know, and there's all this mythology around the fact that we assume it's this lower desire person's, I hate to say this word, but kind of their fault. fault. Like it's, it's on them. And it, it turns out that basically this entire research project in, in some ways was essentially digging into, there are a bunch of other reasons for that disconnect. And what are those? And it was really encouraging to see that there are a bunch of other reasons that have nothing to do with the person having a lower libido. So the blame game isn't even necessary. Let's dive into what should they be looking at instead? Instead of throwing a stone at the partner who isn't matched exactly the way that they are, which I, in all honesty, I'm surprised that one out of five would claim to be perfectly matched because I know people I are know. so different. They had such yeah. different upbringings, and so anyway, well, we're ready for those one out of five couples. We, we're like, go for it, you know, <laughs> knock yourself out. And and actually, it was interesting because you had just as a quick note, you know, you had mentioned about one of these um, nationally representative surveys that we did is the largest nationally representative called matched pair survey mm -hmm. of married couples on this topic. And so we got that data that that 21% who say they're totally on the same page. We got that data by comparing and it was all anonymous, but we could tell this husband was married to this wife, you know, whatever. And, and finding out like, how often do you want to connect? Like, and there 21% of the married couples said the exact same amount. So okay. they got it by actually calculating that. It wasn't even them it trying to figure opinion. out. It wasn't their opinion. It was by literally calculating who was on the same page versus not. Okay. And so, so what are some of the other reasons why that disconnect could be there other than this person? Well, and, and before we go into those other reasons, yeah. Let's just answer the question, approximately how many times per week is is average? Because I think that there's a lot yeah. of people who get it stuck in their head that I'm in a sexless marriage when they're actually having sex <laughs> once a week, but because they're not getting it three or four times a week, they consider it sexless. So what okay. is the average? What's normal you... is the big yes, question. Yes, what's normal? Want. Well, see, I didn't know how much of this when you talked to Dr. Mike, I didn't know how much of this you covered. Um, because we were actually very intrigued to find out that now, hold on, before I answer this, let me just, let me just say what I'm about to say in averages, this is not what you should do, right? You're like every, prescriptive. You're everybody being is different, right? Mm -hmm. Like, because, you know, you might say, well, 70% of the people in my neighborhood have a pet, so I should have a pet. Right. No, no. like. What if you travel a lot or you don't have the budget for it or whatever? Like, it's the same thing in intimacy. Like, this is literally, I'm just telling you averages here. But so you guys are interested in knowing, we we actually found that um, there are two numbers here that are important because the first we need to mention, there was actually a relatively high percentage of people who were in 
kind of sexless marriages. It was 23% actually were in a marriage where they connected less than once a month or never. Well, that's what I was going to say is, is is defining sexless. I understand that it's 10 times per year or less, which is averaging about once a month or less. Less than once a month. Because we also, we, we checked, you know, less than once a month, never, and once a month, multiple times a month, like we did all, all the different options. Mm-hmm. And so now the people who now a sex therapist will clinically consider that sexless, even if it's, you know, once every few months, that's still considered there's, there's an issue there. Right. Um, and, and candidly, one of the things that we found that is important for people to know is that 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 sort of lack of connection, it it is highly correlated to other marriage issues. Like yeah. it, it, sex does seem to be something protective mm-hmm. and something that helps the marriage overcome certain issues. Now, obviously that's not to say that if you have big issues, you should just hop into bed and everything's gonna be fine. No, we wish but, that it could work that way, yeah, I know. but it doesn't. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't. But it, it was actually for some people who've maybe gotten into a bad habit, because that does happen in certain seasons of your life, you know, mm-hmm. when you're little kids or whatever, things are busy or somebody's working a third shift job or whatever. If you've gotten into a habit where you're just not making that a priority, it was a bit of a wake up call, like, oh, wow, like this actually matters, you know, right. specifically. But in terms of averages, if you set aside the people who aren't really connecting and you just do everybody who's, you know, actually connecting, even if it's, you know, occasionally, the average is one and a third times per week. Okay. That's the nationally representative average. <laughs> Jeff and I do marriage events. And I had somebody come up to me after I explained that from the stage at our first marriage event after we got the data. And they're like, one and a third times per week. What does that mean? Like you stop a third of the way through? <laughs> like like, like 2.5 kids. How do you have 2.5 kids? <laughs> no, that just means four times every three weeks. Okay. Oh, there you go. Four times every three weeks is a yeah. better, yeah, there better thing are. to wrap your brain around. Yeah. Okay. Well, so, so for people who are only having sex once a week, the encouragement is you're really not that you're off from the right at the you're right at the average yeah and people who are having sex twice a week kudos to you you're above average you're above average and okay. and so but the thing that we found that was fascinating is that it was almost the the averages were so spread out that really truly when you say are we normal the answer is probably yes because Normal there's a huge group of people who are in that same category. Like we had almost a quarter. It was almost a quarter, a quarter, a quarter, and a quarter. It was almost a quarter who were in that kind of not connecting a whole lot. Another quarter that were in that once a month to once a week kind of bucket. Mm-hmm. Another quarter that were in the, you know, once a week to two to three times a week bucket. And then another quarter that was three times a week or, or more. So, I mean, interesting. Like, it was very spread out. So yeah. the, the encouragement is there is a wide range of normal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So for couples who are having a difficult time because either the quantity or the quality mm-hmm. is a little lacking, at least in one of their minds, 
what did the data reveal as to most common causes or, you know, with some of the roadblocks, I think of, uh, you know, I think of like painful sex or, you know, when a woman is going through menopause, I think yep. of erectile dysfunction issues. I think of pornography addiction issues or infidelity and betrayal issues. Like there's a whole host of issues that I could see could slow the freight train down. Yeah. What did you learn about any of those issues? So we, what, what, one of the things that we found is that I found very encouraging is that when you're again, back to that disconnect, like one person is just, it's just not happening as often as one person wants it to, mm -hmm. that it wasn't usually those big issues, right? It wasn't usually, I mean, those, all those issues existed, but that wasn't the main reason. Okay. Those, those things exist and we should talk about them in a minute. I, I hear like a dun, 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 and like a dun, <laughs> like, what, what is the big reason? So that's actually really what the whole book was about, right? Like, what are those simple things that we just don't know matter? And so one of the biggest ones isn't that somebody has a lower libido, but that they have a different desire type than their spouse. And I don't know if you talked to Dr. Mike about this, but this was one of the like big ones. So okay. I can explain it. Um, if you please do to. unpack this. Okay. I can see uh, a light bulb, but not just beside your head, but above your head right now. <laughs> oh yeah. No, seriously. Like you should have seen me. I was like, oh my gosh, this is like, this is so helpful. The, Cause here's the thing we think, and I don't think any of us realize how much this is down deep, like in our, in our brains, our subconscious assumptions about how sex works. Mm -hmm. We think and it's, I think maybe from Hollywood, it's from watching, you know, you, you don't talk to your friends about this topic. So the only input that you get is what happens with you and what you see on the screen or read in a book. Like those are the only inputs that, that you have. And so we have this idea that there's just one way that sex works. Like you have the, the guy and the girl who look at each other and sparks right and they, they there's all this desire to, there's this desire and pretty soon the clothes are off and they're in bed right and so it was there was a surge of desire and they did something about it mm -hmm. and we think that is what desire is like i'll it's bet it's just, reversed well right. that's one type of desire okay there is a type that is called it's called initiating desire is okay. one of the ways you could put it and it's someone who feels desire and does something about it. And it's usually okay. the person maybe who thinks about sex more often. Okay. Right. But there's a completely other type of desire called receptive desire. Okay. And someone with receptive desire. And by the way, this is 55% of the population. So it's actually even a little more common than initiating desire. The person with receptive desire feels desire in the reverse order. I, I was going to say, I think that some people need to act their way into that yeah. way of feeling. So, so, and so that's a great way of putting it because what happens for, the, and this is a physiological difference, right? This is not your mentally, whatever is, no, this is a physiological and difference. Is, and this is not that something is broken about you. Right. No, this is just the way that 55% of the population are created. 55%. So 50 most people. So the actually higher number than the initiating desire that you see on the screen, right? Right. And so the person with receptive desire, this is, this is, it appears on a spectrum. All of these things appear on a spectrum, but in general, 
what happens is that person usually does not feel desire when they get started. They are choosing to get sexually engaged with their spouse. They trusting are that the feelings will catch up. Trusting that the feelings will catch up. And so physiologically, what happens, which I found really fascinating, is that you decide to get engaged with your spouse that way. You start assuming that it's positive, right? Like this is all assuming goodwilled marriages and right. all of that. Assuming that it's positive, then that person starts to feel arousal, okay? And then desire starts to kick in. And it could be five to 10 minutes in right. and that desire kicks in. And maybe that's the same sense of desire that their spouse felt from the very beginning. Right. And, and so and, it's, it's this is, insane. Like it's important to recognize this is all legitimate physiological differences. Absolutely. And, and what comes into my head is how oftentimes, and it usually is the woman, uh, how oftentimes she will say, that she had her best orgasmic experiences in a sexual encounter where she had zero interest from the start, but she chose to kind of climb over that wall of resistance and she found euphoria on the other side, not yeah. having any idea that it was going to be such a mind-blowing positive experience. So that just supports the theory that, but I'm surprised that it's 55% 55 of people. 55% of the population. And it's called receptive desire yeah. rather than it initiative is, desire. Initiating desire is the person who thinks about sex, who, and the analogy, there's an analogy here that might help. Okay. Think about a car that if you put a car in drive, you know how you, you may not be pest pressing on the gas pedal, but it's still going to be kind of pulled forward anyway. Right. Like, right. so that you could think of as initiating desire. Like it's being pulled forward regardless Imagine a car in neutral. The car is turned on, but you're not being, you're not going any direction. It's just sitting there. Mm -hmm. That's more like receptive desire. It's, okay. it hasn't been activated yet. Okay. It has to be activated. And then there's actually, this is important to mention. There's a small percentage of the population, maybe three to 4% um, on our survey. It was three to 4% of men and three to 4% of women who have something called resistant desire i was gonna ask what about the car that has the parking brake so on? that's there you go that's resistant desire and that is a very different thing from someone saying i'm just not interested like that's more receptive desire language like i'm just not like thinking about it like my you know we had many many um initiating desire husbands and initiating desire wives who would ask why isn't my spouse interested well they probably are interested. It's just being activated differently. And mm -hmm. it will be once they get going. That is completely different from the parking brake being on. That yeah. or maybe being in reverse. That is someone who, for example, has a fear of sex. Yeah. And and like everything in them wants to like run away. And everything in them tries to avoid any situation that might possibly lead in that direction. And so the person with resistant desire, what, what we believe based on talking to a bunch of sex therapists, et cetera, is that that person naturally probably has either initiating or receptive desire, but something is masking it. There's okay. trauma 
I was going to say trauma or abuse would be my my guess. Yep. It, it sometimes there's no obvious cause. Sometimes it's just they're just resistant, and that's heartbreaking because you know it's like, what do you do? How do you deal with it? Um, but most of the most of the time, it it's a pointer. It's like a a yellow light saying, okay, there's something here to look at, and and find out what's underneath this because your natural physiology is usually one or the other of those things, and it's being masked mm -hmm. right now. Right. And what comes to my mind there is how oftentimes a woman will say she comes into my four day workshop or we're doing a, a 12 session coaching package together and she will start the process thinking that she is asexual, that she right. has no yeah. sexual drive or desire. But yet when she looks at that trauma or that abuse and regains her sense of power and is able to create a compartment yep. that she can kind of tuck that away and make room for her pleasure circuits to fire in her brain, she realizes that, oh no, she wasn't asexual at all. So uh, I, again, I realize that you're not a therapist, but your recommendation for someone who feels as if their parking brake is on. Mm -hmm. Would it be that they need to talk with a therapist? They do. And and there there are many different reasons that are correlated with other things we found in the study, like you mentioned, for example, sexual pain, right? Mm -hmm. Like one of the things that was a big aha moment is, wow, that we had something like 30, I think it was 31% of women who experienced pretty significant sexual pain at least one out of every three times that they mm -hmm. had sex. That's a pretty big group. And right. there is a there is a subset of that that of course there's going to be fear. Of course that's going to be something that those women need to deal with and not just push through the pain. Right. And Talk and but so let's just say it's not even something physical. Let's say it's something that's psychological because of trauma or whatever. Mm -hmm. The reality is is that all of us know that feeling in one way or another of being anxious about something. And you know, I get the anxiety, mm -hmm. the anxiety of leaning in. And yet, one of the things that we found that was so like life giving is that if people do lean in to that and if they do say okay this is not how I'm this is not what I'm created for I'm created for something better than this right and created for a, a really holistically beautiful marriage for example and I want that well believe it or not it's usually not that complicated to get there like and then you know, people are resilient. Yes. It's and and you talk about, you know, your coaching packages, for example. One of the things that we found is that even if a person, let's just say it's someone who has resistant desire, who recognizes in themselves, and maybe there's some physiological issue that they need to deal with. Maybe there is sexual pain, for example. Well, Okay, go talk to a sex therapist who understands exactly how to treat that and start getting the help that you need. And right. we're going to find that as long as you've gotten the right help, that it's actually often simpler than people think it is to unpack <laughs> whatever it is that's holding them back. Right. Just like if you cut yourself, well, if you get that cleaned out and get it stitched up and keep a fresh bandage on it, you're going to be fine. It's going to heal because this is what the body does. 
<laughs> the soul will also heal under the right conditions, under the right yeah. circumstances. We have to acknowledge our pain. We have to be willing to unpack our pain and figure out, you know, what kind of treatment it needs. But the human psyche is naturally resilient. And it's funny how people tell themselves a different story. They don't look at a cut and go, oh, that is never going to heal. I'm just I'm going to have this gaping wound the rest of my life. But yet when it comes to their sex life, so oftentimes that's the assumption of, well, yeah. I've been broken for 10 years. So, you know, the next 40, that really sucks for you, pal. But I want to be married. I, 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 yeah, I, I that's literally. That's a lot to ask of another human being to just totally give up all hope of any sort of sexual connection because somebody is hitting a wall. Um, so, yeah, this is an encouraging conversation to me, just hearing how normal this can be. And like you said, how easy it can be to overcome it once you commit yourself to that process. Well, and I'll give you another example of something super simple, right? Like, so this is that. So sometimes we were saying, you know, you have the disconnect and it's not because this person is lower desire. They are, but the real issue is they have different desire type. That's what, that's what we just talked about, right? Right. And so you approach them differently. You realize, oh my gosh, I need to give them some anticipation time. I need to flirt with them you know, ahead of time. So they're thinking about it because they won't be thinking about it. It's like, wow, okay, that's relatively simple, okay? But another one that was relatively simple was literally that the couple sometimes just has no signal for initiation, like mm -hmm. to, to sort of know what to expect. And so somebody is expecting something and it doesn't happen and they get disappointed and somebody feels pressure because, you know, they didn't realize that was the expectation. And you, we, we literally found that if people will have some sort of a signal that they know, okay, this is what's being signaled. It's and, recognizable. And it's recognizable. And, you know, the, the person who's maybe more the initiator has a signal. The person who's maybe more receptive can mm -hmm. share their level of openness because mm -hmm. it's not always going to be, right? Right, right. Um, but if you can do that, suddenly, again... <laughs> You're, you have, oh, like so much of this was just because we didn't know what you were expecting. So much of it comes down to communication. Sex is communication. Yes. It's, that's the, the bottom line. So Shanti, let's say that you encountered someone on the street and they say, oh, there's so many sex and marriage books out there. What would you say to them to inspire them to pick this one up? Because when I remember when Michael asked me, what is what is your preferred outcome for these interviews with Shanti and I? And I just told him yeah. point blank, I do have an agenda and it's that people will pick this book up and actually read it. And I'm usually not that directive, but I totally believe in you guys' intellect and passion and this research that you've come across. But what would you say to the average person on the street who's thinking, who reads books anymore? Like, I don't have time right. to read books. What would you say to inspire them to pick this one up and to dive in together as a couple and see what they could learn? It's so simple. I mean, that would be what I would say is, is to recognize we actually spent three years and $120,000 of research costs in, in order to dial in and dial in and dial in the most simple easy to apply surprises that are probably getting in the way that you didn't even know were getting in the way. And so we can, you know, we actually show people 
it's not, for example, you know, that initiating receptive desire, right? You know, you talk about, you know, for men, okay, well, it's the majority of men, but it's not every man, right? Like if it's 70, 30, I can't remember what the number is, but, you know, every husband reading that, he can go, I'm in the 70% or actually I'm in the 30%, right? Like it gives people a chance to be validated right, by, by the things that we found. And, and to know they're not alone. To know they're not alone. And candidly, one of the things that Mike insisted on, and I'm so grateful that he did, is he said the most important thing that a husband and wife can do, honestly, is to read it together. Yes. And, and so he was like, I just want to create the book so that they can read it together a little bit at a time and talk about what applies to each of them and what doesn't. And it gives them the ability to talk about stuff that they've made never have talked about before. Right. So that's why I'm super excited about it candidly. Yeah. And, and yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to throw out an incentive too. I think that so many people, well, let's, let's just be real. We get lazy. We, we forget that we have all these great tools at our fingertips that are, that cost a fraction. You know, like you can pay me $150 an hour to have a 60 minute conversation <laughs> with you. Or, or you can invest maybe 15 minutes at a time reading one chapter after another and just spend $15, which is 10% of the 150 wow. that you would pay a counselor. But here's what I'm going to do. Anyone listening to this podcast, write this down so you don't forget. I want you to get the book. And we, we haven't mentioned the exact title of it, but it's called Secrets of Sex and Marriage. Secrets of Sex and Marriage by Dr. Michael Seitzma and Shanti Feldheim. If you reach out to me for coaching and you tell me that you already ordered that book and that you're either reading or have already read that book, I will give you 10% off of your coaching. That way it just paid for the book and we'll actually probably be able to make a lot more progress from one coaching session to the next if you've already got that foundation laid. So yeah, I have never so blatantly endorsed a book and just told people outright you need to get this and you need to read it and I'll even give you a discount off of coaching if you do but I'm I'm saying it I'm saying it because Thank literally you. there is no one that I trust more with research and with their their understanding and insights on sexuality so this is the book secrets of sex and marriage they can get it on Amazon any retailer right yep anywhere Yep. And do you guys have a particular website where they can go and order it directly from you to support you more directly? Because I'm going to be honest, when you get it through these discounted places, the <laughs> author gets a fraction of what they could get if you order it directly. I would love to see them recoup this $120,000 that they invested just for our oh, to teach us. I know. One of these days, hopefully we will. No, we <laughs> actually don't sell it directly, but for people who want a little bit more like specialized resources, like for example, about sexual pain, right? If you go to the website, secretsofsexandmarriage.com, there are some of those specialized resources there. Good. So there yeah. are other tools in addition to the book that you can yeah. grab hold of. Shanti, thank you for your commitment, for your integrity. And, and I don't just mean like spiritual integrity and emotional integrity, the ability to do proper research that is sound that doesn't hurt people that <laughs> serves a purpose that 
that any statistician would look at and not be able to argue with. That is a gift that very few authors have, and you have it in spades. Thank you oh, for sharing it with us and with the world. Thank you. It's it's definitely something that God built up over time, but I appreciate that. You bet. Well, we appreciate you tuning in to another episode of Sexual Confidence on Tap with Shannon Etheridge and friends. We love you for listening. And we thank you for tapping on us.